in my freshman year. Um, been doing kickoffs in this room for four now. Uh, and as I was getting ready for today, I found a picture from four years ago. Uh, my first kickoff here. Back, back when the hair wasn't quite as good as it was now. Uh, our first year of marriage, my wife said my hair was the hardest thing about marriage for her. We're far past that, all right? Again, welcome to Mountain View. Hey, um, the last thing we want to do as a ministry is kind of bait and switch you tonight. Give you the best Thursday night program we've ever thrown, and then like the worst Thursday night program next week. And the way we're not going to do that is we're just giving you a regular Thursday night. This is what we do every single Thursday that we gather as a ministry. Uh, the only difference is generally we're at our church building on Remington. So don't come here next week. Go to Remington, and we'll tell you more about that. Uh, but we come together, we play ridiculous playlists that we found from the middle school ministry. Uh, <laughs> we hang out, we sing worship songs, we learn from the Bible, and then there's usually something going on later that night. And that's all we're going to do tonight. So if you've got Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 7. That's where we're going to be tonight. It could be on your app, it could be on your Bible. If you don't have anything, that's great. It's going to be up on the screens. While we turn there, I'm going to ask you a question, all right? How many of you have ever gotten fired from a job? Mm. The pastor in the room raises his hand. That's great. Uh, it's okay if you didn't raise your hand. People are kind of ashamed about this sometimes. Uh, I did a little research this week and found a poll on the internet, don't know by who, but this is what it said about people getting fired, all right? Two-thirds of people, 66%, never been fired in their life. 18% uh, fired once. 9% fired twice, 4% fired three times, and 3% fired four more times. Now, I hover in that four or more times range. <laughs> Let me tell you about that, all right? 18 years old, I was a freshman at Montana State, uh, bright-eyed, immature, thought I was going to be a doctor, left after a semester with a 1.8. Uh, no doctor school for me. Uh, and I guess that kind of counts as getting fired. So it was fine. I went across the street and I got a job at the biggest breakfast restaurant in town. It was called The Breakfast Club. Here's the problem. Uh, on their busiest weekend of the year, Mother's Day weekend in a university town, one of my favorite musicians was playing a secret CD release party uh, six hours away. So I called work and said I couldn't go and went to the concert and was fired immediately on Monday. Totally fine. Just crossed the street and went to Safeway. I had some deli experience, so I got a job at the deli, but the problem here was that they wanted me to like clock in on time and shave and wear a uniform and things that I wasn't used to doing. So one day, I was supposed to work, and all of my friends were going to go float the river, right? And I was like, well, I really want to float the river. So I called, said I couldn't come. Uh, on the way to the river, we stopped at this Safeway to get <laughs> snacks. Uh, the manager saw me, fired immediately. Totally fine, crossed the street, went to Costco. Got a job as a sample guy. Best job I've ever had in my life, besides this one. Uh, turns out my manager didn't like that I was eating all of my own samples and sleeping on the patio furniture during my break and like, you know, flirting with the girls at the register during my break. It was terrible. So, end of that summer, got fired from this one too. I think you're getting a picture here, right? Uh, on paper, my resume didn't look good. And we haven't even talked about like, what my life looked like. If somebody had just like, examined my life and I had to write that on paper, it would have looked even worse. 
uh, heavy drinking problem from the time I was 15 to about 25. You can imagine the guy who lost four jobs, had a lot of broken relationships, and I owed people money, no conflict resolution skills. Things were in a really, really rough spot back then. If you looked at your life right now, how many of you would look at your paper resume, look at your life and say, uh, things aren't good right now? I'm not sure anybody would look at my paper, look at my life, look at my reputation and say, like, I'm killing it in life right now. So if that's you, this message is for you tonight. Let me give you a little background in Luke 7, all right? Jesus is going around and he's spending time with and pursuing all the sorts of people that nobody wants to be friends with, all right? First he goes to this Roman centurion, an enemy of the Jewish people, and he spends time with him. Then he goes to this little village on the edge of the Jewish territory, way away from all the popularity of Jerusalem. And then he finally goes to John the Baptist's disciples, who were pretty weird guys and girls. They like lived out in the desert, and they ate locusts, and they were just as far away from culture and society as you can imagine. And this is who Jesus is constantly pursuing. Jesus is a friend to the people that nobody else is friends with. And that sets us up for Luke chapter 7, verse 36, where we're going to start, all right? So let me read you this. Verse 36 says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Let me tell you what's going on here, all right? There's a lot of words here that you might not get if you're not spending a lot of time in the Bible and a lot of time at church. So the first word that pops up here is Pharisees, all right? Let me tell you who a Pharisee is. A Pharisee is the religious leaders of the day in Jerusalem and in the surrounding towns. And here's how people would have seen him, all right? Pharisees from the outside were perfect. Perfect resume. From the time they were little kids, they went to all the right schools, they had all the right teachers, all the right mentors, they had all the political influence in the world, religious influence, they were the community leaders in their cities. You wanted to be friends with a Pharisee. You wanted to be seen next to him. And that's not even talking about his character, all right? From the outside looking in, Pharisees were perfect people. They knew all the religious laws. They followed them perfectly. They knew all the cultural customs and the traditional customs. They followed everything the way that they were supposed to. These guys were the guys to emulate and model and imitate in everything. And it's pretty common at this time for Pharisees to host traveling teachers like Jesus for a dinner party. All right? And dinner parties back then looked a little bit different than they do now. Uh, back then, they were kind of open invite to anybody. Now, not everybody was allowed to, like, sit at the table and eat dinner, but anybody was allowed to stand in the back of the room against the wall and just watch all the important people eat. All right? It would be like if, I don't know, like Tony Frank and that glorious goatee of his had a big dinner party with, like, Joyce McConnell and Jay Norble and future NCAA champs, the CSU Rams, and yeah, I get that. All of us are allowed to just stand in the back and watch them eat, okay? That's what's happening here. And now we've got this woman who has come to dinner, a woman of the city who was a sinner. That's what her resume has to say about her, all right? A woman of the city who was a sinner. 
And culturally, and just how that's phrased here in Scripture, that probably means that she was a prostitute. So I want you to think about the difference between these two people, all right? A Pharisee and a prostitute. Pharisee, on the surface, perfect resume, perfect reputation, blameless. The guy that everybody wants to be friends with, the guy that everybody wants to be seen with. And now we got this woman. And I don't know how she got to where she is in life, and the Bible doesn't say either, but I can guarantee you, I promise you, this isn't where she wanted to be in life. This isn't what she wanted her reputation to be. I bet she wasn't dreaming about being the person with a bad reputation standing in the back of a room watching other people eat. And she's got to know what people say about her, right? She's got to know what her reputation is. She's got to know that her place is in the back with the sinners, tolerated but never embraced, maybe seen but never spoken to unless somebody was trying to use her or take advantage of her. And you would think that a woman in this position would stay in the back, right? That she'd know her place, that she'd know that people would expect her not to make a scene, not to draw attention to herself. But there's something about Jesus that makes her do something radical. Here's what happens. She takes this alabaster flask. Uh, The Bible calls it ointment. A better word would be perfume. And this is definitely the most expensive thing she owns. It's probably the only expensive thing she owns. Jewish women back then would have this small jar of perfume that they'd often carry around with them or that they'd wear as a necklace to give themselves an aroma that fights the odors of the day, all right? And think about this woman's life. This is probably really, really important to her. But she's so overcome by Jesus that she not only starts crying, she starts weeping hard enough that her fears, tears wash off his feet. And she undoes her hair and she wipes his feet off and she kisses his feet and she breaks this alabaster jar and anoints him with perfume. And you can't get this perfume out without breaking it. This is a one-time use if you want to get it out. In one moment, she just gave Jesus the entire treasure, all of her possessions, everything that must have been important. So here's the question, all right? Uh, What would your response to this be? Let's say you are sitting at this dinner table or you're in the back against the wall and you're watching this play out. What do you do and what do you even say to this? Here's what the Pharisee has to say. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Here's what the Pharisee is thinking, all right? Jesus can't be as important as people says he is. He can't be a prophet because if he was, he'd never let a woman like this touch him. If he was a prophet, if he knew anything about God, there's no way they'd let a woman like this with a reputation like this anywhere near him. So let's just pause and step, for, step back for a second. I want to talk to anybody who has felt judged this way, especially by anybody who's claimed religion and claimed Christianity. This Pharisee, his name's Simon, this religious ruler, If he really knew who God was, he would have been the first one to welcome this woman and the first one to care about her. At the very least, he should have paused and he should have asked, why is Jesus so important to this woman? But that's not what he does. He's blinded and the only thing he sees is this woman's sin. No compassion, no gentleness, no empathy, 
nothing but a quick jump to judgment and disgust. And I know a lot of you must be judged and ridiculed and shamed by religious church people just like this woman was because I was judged in the exact same way. I was that kid in high school that parents told their sons and daughters not to spend time with because I was the one that was going to pollute them and contaminate them. And I would be this guy standing in the back of the room watching the important people talk, the guy with the bad resume and bad reputation. Simon looks at this woman, all he sees is sin. Parents would look at me, all they would see is sin. And you know what happens when over and over and over again you're treated like you make people dirty? When you're shown over and over again that your resume doesn't add up, that because of your reputation, people don't want you around, that you're unwanted, unseen. You know what happens when nobody invites you to sit at the table because you're contaminated? You start to believe it. Who here has felt that way in a church or around Christians before? Who's felt like they didn't belong and that they were unwanted and unseen? Didn't have the right resume? Maybe a better question is who feels that way right now? Not just that you've sinned, not just that you've made some mistakes, but that you are sin and that you are a mistake. You are dirty and you might even contaminate the people around you. And maybe you feel that way because of what you've done. But just speaking from experience here of five or six years of having conversation after conversation with college students, so often we feel that way, not because of what we have done, but what has been done to us. So a lot of you might remember the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination a couple of years ago. And we're not going to get into the weirdness of that situation. But at the time, there was this woman, Caitlin Flanagan, who wrote an article for The Atlantic about a time in high school when a man assaulted her. And here's what she had to say. In my mind, it was not an example of male aggression used against a girl to extract sex from her. In my mind, it was an example of how undesirable I was. It was proof that I was not the kind of girl you took to parties or the kind of girl you wanted to get to know. I was the kind of girl you took to a deserted parking lot and tried to make give you sex. Telling someone would not be revealing what he had done, it would be revealing of how deserving I was of that kind of treatment. More recent than that, I was talking to um, one of the college guys that comes to this ministry, and he was assaulted in high school just the same way. And he told me by the time he got to college, he felt so dirty, so impure, that he just asked himself, like, what's the point of even trying to be pure? What's the point of even trying to pursue a holy life when all I feel is dirt? Sometimes what's been done to you makes you less, think less about your assailant's dirtiness and makes you think like you're the one who's dirty. And if you've got a lot of Simon the Pharisees in your life, if judgment and scorn and disgust is all that comes to mind when you think church or religion, well, first, I'm just so sorry. And what Jesus says next is for you. Verse 40. And Jesus, answering the Pharisees, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. 
Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus loved to speak in parables and stories. And that's what he does here, a story about a banker and two debtors. So let me get it to you. Um, I think this might, I don't know, resonate with a lot of you as you're probably racking up school debt even as we speak, all right? So maybe you'll relate. A denarii is one day's wage for a day laborer, all right? So one guy owes 50 days worth of money, and one guy owes 500 days worth of money. And let me put this into perspective for you, all right? A day laborer in America, so someone who is hired by a farmer to go out for one day and pick crops. That's the example that Jesus is using here. A day laborer makes $41 a day. So one of these guys owes $2,050. Another guy owes $20,550. Can you imagine paying $20,000 making $41 a day? If you can't, well, some of you might actually do that one day. Uh, Anybody want to guess how much the average school debt in America is? I'll just tell you. It's $32,731. You guys have it way better. At CSU, the average debt is like 15 or 16K, uh, so you might be okay, Uh, especially if the word engineer is in your major. Uh, I looked this up, and nine out of the 12 majors that are easiest to pay back debt, uh, they all have engineer in the title. Um, However, if you're a psychology major, like I was, uh, you are number 46 on the list, uh, so this might be you one day. And if you want any advice on financial planning, uh, talk to Adam later. Now, can you imagine paying off $20,000 when you make 40 a day? When you're trying to raise a family and pay for medical expenses and school supplies and hopefully at least two meals a day on $41 a day? It's impossible. So when the banker cancels this debt, seems obvious who's going to love the banker more, right? Even Simon gets it right away, the one who owes more. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't tell pointless stories and pointless parables. I mean, he probably did. Like, I like to think that Jesus joked around with the disciples all the time. But those stories aren't recorded in scripture like this one is, all right? Jesus is making a comparison here between this sinful woman and Simon. Simon is the host, and hosts 2,000 years ago in Israel, that was a really, really important job, all right? This host should have had water for Jesus to wash his feet, and he didn't. And he should have kissed Jesus on the way in as a greeting, and he didn't. And he should have had a little bit of olive oil to anoint his head, and he didn't. There was just complete indifference to Jesus. But look at this woman. She's crying so much that her tears are enough to wash Jesus' feet. She's making a total scene because of her affection for Jesus, and she breaks the most expensive thing in her life, her only treasure, as a sign of her affection for Jesus. Therefore, 
Jesus says this to her. Let's read verse 47 again. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he says to this woman, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, there's a lot here. And if you're unfamiliar with scripture, if you're unfamiliar with church, some of these phrases might seem like a bit much. So let's just take it one step at a time, all right? Verse 47. There's one thing that Jesus and Simon both agree on, all right? It's that this woman has a lot of sin. Her sins are many. Jesus doesn't downplay or ignore or dismiss or brush away sin. He didn't 2,000 years ago, and he doesn't today. He takes sin seriously. But praise God, he doesn't leave it there. And he tells her, your sins are forgiven. That's what he says to this woman. Two things, your sins are forgiven, and your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Don't miss this, okay? It's not this woman's love for Jesus that saves her. It's her faith in Jesus. Your faith has saved you. Faith in what? Faith, belief that Jesus can forgive sins. And let me tell you why that's such a radical statement, all right? Verse 49, everybody in this room has the same reaction. Then those who were at table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Everyone is shocked when Jesus says your sins are forgiven. You know why? Because only God can forgive sins. Jesus doesn't come right out and say that he's God in this passage. But everyone at this dinner party knows exactly what he means when he tells this woman, your sins are forgiven. Now this probably isn't the first time this woman has met Jesus. He's been around a while. He's been preaching. He's been healing. He's been talking to people and loving people and sharing this message that he has the ability and the power to forgive sins. And somewhere along the lines, this woman must have met Jesus and believed that message because she is completely changed by him. And we know this woman is changed because of her love. She who is forgiven much loves much. In college, this is the same message, the same invitation that Jesus has for you. Believe in him and be changed. Believe that Jesus is God and that he's the only one who can forgive sins because he's the only one who paid the price for sin by dying on a cross. And we believe that's true because he rose from the dead three days later. So now the message that Jesus preached to this woman simply isn't come and be welcome, but come and be changed. Doesn't matter what your resume says about you, doesn't matter what your reputation says about you, it's faith in Jesus that saves you and it's faith in Jesus that changes you. And this woman is changed by Jesus and nothing else. She's not a Bible scholar. She's not a religious leader or a devout follower of the rules. I doubt she cares at all about all of these rules that the Pharisee is following. And she isn't even attempting to hide or cover her sin. She's not trying to pretend to be somebody that she isn't. She doesn't need to because she's forgiven and she's changed and she's different for eternity. All because of Jesus, all because of faith in him. And I hope that a lot of you are asking the same question that this woman must have asked herself. Could Jesus forgive my sin? Can he wipe away my stains? Can he change me? Can he heal the deepest wounds and insecurities and shames and doubts and dirt in my life? And yes, he can. 
And you might not know him well enough to trust that yet. And you might not know him well enough to believe that message yet. And right now, that's okay. The question I want you to be asking is the same question that everybody at this dinner party asked. Who is this that even forgives sins? If that's you, if that's the question that you're asking, here's what I've got for you, okay? I'm sorry about the Pharisees, but Jesus isn't a Pharisee. Jesus is a friend to the people that nobody else is friends with. That's actually one of the accusations that the Pharisees had against him over and over again, that he was a friend of tax collectors and prostitutes and the friendless. Over and over again, he's going to the people on the margin that nobody else cared about. And if that's who Jesus is, then that's who Jesus' followers should be too. People that are friends with the people that nobody else is friends with, the people that are friends with the people with the bad resumes and the bad reputations, the people who currently feel like they don't just make mistakes, but they are a mistake. And that's who we want to be as a ministry, a ministry that's known as people who are friends with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and the friendless. So my invitation to you, if you feel like you have a lot in common with this woman, is that you are not simply welcome here. You are so welcome here. But Jesus' invitation isn't simply come and belong. It's come and be changed. There's probably plenty of places on campus where you can belong, but there's only one person who I promise you can change you, can really change you, and that's Jesus. That's because Jesus isn't just a friend of sinners. He's the Savior of sinners. He's the one who died on a cross, taking all the wrath and all the punishment that sin deserves. And he rose from the dead three days later with an invitation to everybody who feels this way. An invitation of hope and salvation and peace and a changed life. Not just in this life, but in the next one. So it's now, it's come and be welcome, come and belong, and come and be changed. And if you don't know that message yet, and if you don't believe it yet... Everything we do here at this ministry is to help introduce you to Jesus and to teach you who he is, to teach you his message, to teach you to trust him and believe him. I'm sold out that Jesus is the only one who can truly change your life. And I want to invite you to keep coming back to hear that message over and over again and meet people that have been changed by Jesus. And over time, I just pray and I hope that that message sticks with you and you believe it and Jesus changes you as well. And in fact, for the next three weeks, that's what we're going to be talking about. You know, Adam introduced this a little bit earlier. Know, grow, and go. That's what we're talking about for the next three weeks. Who we are, why we are, the way we are. I didn't think about that. And why we go for God. How we know him, how he changes us, and what he has for us. Those who follow Jesus are changed by Jesus. They're noticeably different. Just like this woman is noticeably different than Simon. So my invitation and my challenge to you is consider this question, who is Jesus who forgives sins? So for three weeks, come and see. Come and see on Thursday nights. Come on Sunday where we're going to baptize John who for the first time a month ago said, hey, I have faith in Jesus. I have faith that he changes people. <laughs> come, and, come and join a life group. Come and make friends. I think God is going to use the people here. He's going to use the messages here on Thursday. He's going to use the word that we preach and teach and talk about to change you. 
So if you're here tonight and you feel like you've got a lot in common with the woman in the story, that's my challenge and my invitation. Come and see. But maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're starting to recognize that maybe you have more in common with Simon than with this woman in the story. Simon is the person that everybody admires. Simon's the person that everybody wants to be close with. He's the guy with the perfect resume, the perfect reputation, the guy whose sin is hard to see. He's the guy who knows so much about Christianity, and yet he can invite Jesus over for dinner. He can host him in his house, and he can still miss him. You could share dinner with Jesus. You can be close to him, and you can still miss him. Simon's got a small view of Jesus and a small view of his own sin. And the implication in this story is that Simon isn't saved. Simon isn't forgiven. He who is forgiven little loves little. And we see that reflected in his indifference to Jesus. So if that's you, if you feel like you've got more in common with Simon, here's what I have to say to you, all right? You wouldn't be the first Pharisee that Jesus saves. The same grace, the same mercies, the same love that he has for this woman, for tax collectors and Pharisees, he has for you. Jesus isn't simply the friend of tax collectors and prostitutes. He's the friend of Pharisees as well. In fact, the number one missionary in the world, Paul, who wrote most of the Bible that we preach, Paul's a Pharisee. Paul had way more in common with Simon than he had with this woman. And it's not that Paul and Simon and the other Pharisees sinned less than this woman. Far from it. We're all equally broken. We're all equally sinful, equally desperate for a Savior. It's just that sometimes it's harder for Pharisees to believe that. So if you're sitting here tonight and you've got more in common with Simon than this woman... If you're having a hard time passionately loving Jesus, passionately loving people with bad resumes and bad reputations, if you realize you've got more in common with Simon than you might have realized, here's what I've got for you because that's a scary place to be. Ask people to point out your sin. Ask them, hey, are there ways that I'm judgmental or arrogant or prideful? Are there ways that I'm judging people or hurting people without recognizing it? Are there ways that I'm more like Simon than I am like Jesus? And that's scary and that's uncomfortable. But the greater you understand your sin, the greater you're going to understand Jesus and his mercy for you. And finally, a challenge for everyone here who calls Jesus Savior, all right? Your hospitality and your love for outsiders, just like this woman, is a direct reflection of your love for Jesus and your understanding of what God has forgiven you of. He who is forgiven much loves much. I want you to imagine this woman five years from this story, all right? Jesus tells her, your sins are forgiven, you're saved, go in peace. And so she goes, and she must have gone to a community of believers. Churches started not too long after this. She must have found a church that loved her and helped her get on her feet, helped her get out of her lifestyle, to have a home, to have a job, to have the opportunity to host people and to have dinner parties. And how do you think she's going to treat her guests? Like Simon or like Jesus? That's how Jesus calls you to love people. 
And when it's tough, when it's tough to be friends with sinners and tax collectors, and when it's tough to be friends with Pharisees and love people like Jesus loved people, remember this, all right? Remember that we are great sinners and that Christ is a great Savior. And it's not me who said that. It was this guy, John Newton. He's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. And at the end of his life, looking back at years of being a pastor, but before that, years of being a slave trader, he says this, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Amen? One way we remember those two things is to sing about them, to sing about our sin and to sing about our Savior. So as the band comes down, would you pray with me and stand up and sing these truths together? Jesus, I am just sold out that you are the only one who changes people. You're the only one who is capable of forgiving sins. And Jesus, I just ask that you uniquely meet each person here tonight, that you meet the sinners, and the people that have more in common with this woman of the city, would you meet them and show yourself as not judgmental, not hypocritical, not a Pharisee, but as a Savior? And Jesus, would you bring conviction and would you bring grace at the same time to those who struggle with judgmentalism and those that have more in common with this Pharisee than this woman? And I'm just so confident that you, Jesus, are the Savior of both because you're the Savior of all. And I pray that tonight we uniquely feel that and experience that as we worship together. I trust you, Jesus. Love you. All this in your name. Amen.